for an outstanding cricketer and a statement of the highest quality from Steve Smith. The Sheffield Shield trophy is moving north. Queensland have dominated all four days at Allen Border Field to take out their ninth trophy. Carlos Brathwaite, remember the name. History for the West Indies. Test match innings ever played. England triumph here against the odds. Then that Stokes is the hero. Welcome to the Inside Edge Cricket Podcast as we scrutinise the game across Australia and around the world. A special shout out to our friends in Perth through 91.3 Sport FM. My name's Wes Cusworth and I'm accompanied by Anthony Petkovic, the Marks, Brunger and Browning, along with the lad from Liverpool, Tom Meredith. And that's where we're going to start as the English white ball dominance of the T20 World Cup is giving Tom plenty to get excited about. Thanks for having us, boys. Um, got one simple question for you today. Will Will England ever lose a T20 international? It's four from four in the World Cup. Absolutely, absolute dominance so far. And really, has there ever been a better T20 package than this England side? You look at the batting, uh, the likes of Butler and Roy at the top of the order being amazing so far. Butler's knock against Sri Lanka the other night. Top draw, freakishly good. 101 off 67 balls. You're not going to get better than that. Roy's been just as good. The bowling unit has worked brilliantly. Rashid is a spinner. Um, fantastic. And ultimately, the scariest thing is for you guys is that there's still some left in the tank here. There's lads in this order that haven't haven't performed yet, haven't been needed. So um, whenever we face you guys again, which we hope we do in the semis, we're going to put you to the sword and, and, and hopefully sweep you aside once more. Any thoughts on that, boys? Mm-hmm. Okay. Uh, okay, I'll go first. <laughs> um, I, I, I must admit, I, and, and listeners to last week's show, uh, Tom and gentlemen will uh, will know that I, I did tip England to to win this tournament, and I saw no reason the other night against uh, Australia as to why they won't win this tournament. The question I'd like to pose to you, Tom, and th- this is one right from left field, and I've been stewing on this all afternoon. Australia must win their next two games to make the semi-final series. But we also have to count on your lot beating South Africa. So my question to you is, do you think they might actually lay down for that game just to deny the Aussies a spot in the semi-finals? What do you think about that? I did read about that today, Mark, and I think it's it's natural only to, to, to want to um, make Australia lose, if we're honest. So I reckon there's a chance of them rolling over. Um, maybe playing some of the, the guys who haven't played yet um, and sending them home early. But as we mentioned earlier, that may actually come back to haunt them. That sends the Aussies back in time to get prepped for the Ashes. So we want them to stay in that in this bubble for as long as they possibly can. Um, so let's beat the, the Saffirs and, and get Aussies in the semis. That's what we want. Tom, I would say that uh, the biggest threat to you actually winning the T20 World Cup is if the English tabloid press get on board too soon yeah. because uh, having witnessed what the English tabloid press can do to the English soccer team, um, if your front page on the Sun, the Mirror, the Mail, 
all those papers, if any of those guys start looking at that, they will get very, very nervous and perhaps succumb to the extra pressure. Are you trying to say it's it's not coming home, Mark? Oh, <laughs> well, all those, all those football tournaments that were on when I was over there, they were all coming home and they're somewhere <laughs> down the bottom of the English Channel, those trophies. Definitely. But certainly not in the UK. I think the difference with this English this English cricket team compared to the English football teams is that they're they're in a mindset of winning. They they're used to winning now. They've had a period of of five years where under Captain Morgan, who's who's been amazing, they've set a mentality to to win essentially, and they're used to it. Whereas the, the football team has never done that. So I think we're we're in we're in the safe hands. Morgan's back in the runs, so everything's rosy in the England camp. The other key difference is based on the educational academic ability of the English cricketers. None of them know how to read anyway. <laughs> I was just about to say, Tom, you were, I was just about to say, Tom, you were living dangerously because Mr. Petkovic hadn't said much and now he's just uh, just come in from left field. It's always a bit, yeah, it's always a bit unnervy when, when uh, he doesn't say anything, really. So I think, yeah, these lads, they don't need to be able to read. If you can hit the balls that well, if you can bat like Butler... Who, who really cares? Is he, is he the best T20 batsman in the world? I, I would venture to say that he is by, by a long way. Just the the disdain which with he treats any bowler and his, his strength and his ability to just hit through the ball is nothing like I've ever seen before. I agree, Mark. I think at the moment he he is probably the full package as a T20 and, and an ODI player. Um, I don't know if you watched the, the knock against Sri Lanka. He just made it look ridiculously easy on a track that people were struggling to score. So he's he's next level good. Still not convinced of him at test level, which we might go into later, but I think as a one-day white ball player, he is he is unbelievable. And I think there's a massive IPL deal around the corner for him, which he hasn't quite quite had yet. Anthony Petkovic is, uh, I believe, of the view that this is not ideal preparation for an Aussie success throughout the course of the Ashes series. So we're not too fast, are we, Anthony? No, I think, though, we need them home as quickly as possible. The one advantage Australia has over touring teams is that they often go into test series battle-hardened through the Sheffield Shield, uh, a bit of a forgotten tournament at the moment. Um, And interesting, the last time that England were successful in Australia, 2010-2011, they actually had a series, a strong series of warm-up games against state sides and against Australia and Australian A11 and they entered the test series knowing that they were absolutely fully prepared. Well, it's an advantage that Australia has foregone with this particular format, um, though it is good to see that there have been some players at home who have performed quite strongly and that will stand them in good stead. We know that uh, the likes of Green and maybe Harris and Kawaja perhaps and Head will enter the Test Series uh, chock full of runs. Well, Mark Brunger, I know too you have some reservations about whether or not the Aussies actually take T20 cricket seriously enough. Yeah, look, I don't know, Wes. I mean, like they always say, oh, you know, we go in to, to win every game that we you know, we contest and all that sort of stuff. But but really, does Australia take T20 too seriously? I, I, I don't know whether it does or not. I, I think the uh, Cricket Australia are still a little bit in the bemused stakes with T20. I don't think they really recognise it as, as a legitimate um, tier of international cricket. And and their selection of the team shows something along those lines. And the fact that, you know, I, I tend to agree with Shane Watson's comments in the earlier in the week that Australia 
doesn't really know what its perfect T20 side is. They sort of pick a few players who make runs in in one day matches and, and test matches, and and it's not really suited. And, and these are words that I never thought I'd hear someone hear out of my mouth, but. I totally agree with Shane Warne that I don't think there's a place for Steve Smith in that T20 side, and, and I think Mitch Marsh should have played against England. Now, they're two pretty large statements for anyone that knows me, A, Steve Smith out of any Australian side, and B, A, Marsh coming into the team, um, particularly Mitch Marsh, who's had numerous opportunities. But I just I can't help thinking that this side doesn't play together enough. Australia doesn't play enough T20 cricket. Not that I necessarily want them to play more T20 cricket, but I just don't think they play enough to gel like the England team does. They play a lot of T20 cricket England, and you can see the uh, the benefits of that in their results in this tournament. But I still think Australia are a long, long way behind. Is it is it selection or is it just the lack of depth of quality in Australian cricket? We've had mm. Mitch Marsh batting at number three. Oh, that's that's the answer. We got a couple of scores. In the Caribbean, now it's not in the side again. It's mm. but who who are the guys that you're saying? Well, the the guys that are playing Sheffield Shield, this guy should be there or that guy should be there. They just I don't think they exist. Mm. But that's but that's that's where the problem is with the way cricket is structured in this country. Um, I'm going to be pretty blunt when I say this, but I think Cricket Australia has ballsed up the way that they run cricket over summer here in Australia. Once upon a time, when when Kerry Packer, the great man, was in charge, uh, things run a lot, hell of a lot better. And I think that they need to take an element of what Kerry Packer did um, with the way cricket is played in this country. I think it's probably not a bad idea to make sure that you move the T20 competition from its current position to maybe later in the year, around the end of January, and move it to that period. And the reason for that is I believe that cricket in Australia should start with the Sheffield Shield as a lead-up to a test series so that your test players are getting the best opportunity to tune themselves up for the coming test Mm. series and then play the Big Bash whilst you're running some T20 internationals. Let's go back to the old World Series Cup type of format where we invite two teams over for the summer. We play a, you know, a, a, a five match or, you know, like a round robin uh, T20 competition with a final. And then you've got the big bash running at the same time so that your big bash players are in form for the national team and can play in that T20. So I just think it needs a bit of a rethink at, at Cricket Australia's front office as to how they structure the summer to actually help both our, our test, our one-day and our T20 teams be in their best possible form. Definitely. I, I think the scheduling will always be a challenge for Cricket Australia. I think they, they haven't really helped themselves with wanting to make the BBL so big. But I'm going to change it slightly, Mark, and pose this question to you. Do you do you really think that dropping the best batsman in the world from the Australian T20 team is going to make that team better? I think it could because I know Steve Smith is an unusual talent with an unusual uh, sort of technique, and I'm not in sure, not entirely sure that that prescribes to a to a twenty over match because you know you look at someone like Joss Butler or you look at someone like Johnny Bairstow or you look at someone from uh, you know players from a lot of the other teams. Every team sort of has a player or a number of players who can come out and just dominate bat and ball, bat over ball and hit the ball over the fence for six. And let's face it, 
that's all T20 cricket is, sixes and fours. Now, Steve Smith is a great accumulator of runs. He hits balls to strange areas and things like that. But I just don't think uh, that style is is suited to, to T20 cricket. I think you need to be attacking from ball one and looking after the first over or even in the first over to be putting your opposition bowler over the fence for six. And we all know that that's not Steve Smith's cup of tea. Yeah. It's an interesting conversation because you look at the likes of Root, Root doesn't get into the England team, which is an interesting one. Mm. But then you look at the likes of William Williamson for New Zealand, who's probably a similar player and, and dominates at T20 level. So for mm. me, I personally think it's the, the lads around him. I think it's good. It, he would get in most teams in the world. It's good to have a, a, a solid rock that is going to score you 30, 40, 50 most games. How the other lads bat around him is, is key. I, I reckon that there's every likelihood that Mark Browning and Anthony Pekovic being test match devotees would be saying, who cares if Steve Smith doesn't play <laughs> T20 cricket? Am I right? Absolutely I correct. So. I just think there's something wrong with the format. If you're saying that Steve Smith can't play 20 yeah. through 20, I think I think that's lunacy, to be perfectly honest. Uh, he plays in your best 11. I just think we don't know what our best 11 is. Yeah. And I, and I still think that, that for mine, this team is too old. Um, and there's not the young, there's not the youth coming through. I think it's it's mainly a young young man's game, and this team is just too damn old. And if we if we run a national big bash franchise competition every year, then we should have T Twenty cricketers coming out of our wazoo. Let's we be don't. honest about it. And we, don't. Week, and we don't. There has do not we? been in ten years. In 10 years, a verifiable, proven, international player of quality come out of the BBL from an Australian point of view. There's and that's a who nibbled at the edges, but we have not had a player on the world stage that has come from the BBL. Ten so what, years so, so the what is the purpose of the BBL? The, the pathways in Australian cricket now constructing themselves in the right way. So we had this period from 95 till 2007 where we were clearly the best side in the world. And those guys could score at three or four runs and over at test level. Then they went down to, to uh, ODI cricket and they scored at six or seven runs and over. And all they had to do was convert their game to go to eight runs and over when they played T20. Now we're seeing this, we've got all these old guys battling in the T20 World Cup. You, you watch first-class cricket, test cricket in Australia now, they battled to get two runs and over. I mean, Australia made 200 in the second innings at the MCG last year. I harp on this all the time. And they batted 103 overs. Now, how hard is it to score singles and score two and three runs and over? They can't do it anymore. I, I really have a big question mark over the way that our grassroots cricket and our pathways for our talented players is now structured. They should be taught to play at the highest level, which is test cricket. We're all saying that. And then the rest of it will filter down. But, you know, we we go for Cameron Green and we say, he's going to be great. And he might be. Or poor old Will Pekoski. But Will probably won't end up being able to play cricket. But we used to have other options. There are no other options coming through. Why is that? I mean, Tom, you again, you've seen, you've played good club cricket in England, a bit of minor counties. Now you're playing GCA, which is the best regional cricket in Victoria. 
held. I, there was a time when we used to scoff at English grassroots cricket. I don't think there's that much gap anymore. I think England have caught up to us, maybe past us. You, you'd have a better idea than me. I think it's. I think you can trace it back to the the mentality England put around the whole program about three or four years ago. So in in the lead up to the last World Cup in England, two or three years before that, everything was focused on white ball cricket. So everything was focused on these fifteen lads who were who were guns in the white ball arena. We're going to put all our focus on get, getting these lads to be the best one day and T Twenty players they they can be, and that fruit is really showing. Um, showing at the moment. I personally don't think there's a massive talent underneath the current team. We've got some brilliant players in the current team, but if you, as we've seen in the test arena, once you scratch the surface in the surface in terms of the batting order, there's not many behind them. So I personally think it's it's probably over exaggerated, only because the, these eleven lads are so bloody good. But there's there's not many coming coming after that, and the strength of the the English T20 comp is is not that great, really. The hundred has, has been introduced to to ultimately improve that and raise the standard. So I could yeah see you laughing again. I know everyone on this call hates the hundred, but I'm gonna still I'm gonna fight for it. It's it's still worth um, worth exploring, and it's got a future for me. Oh, I love any form of cricket, Tom. I'm with you, mate. But I, I think we do what we do value, Tom, is the fact that you're the only guy as a panel member that's actually played T20 cricket. So I mean, you're the one that's going to have the best grasp of this. I mean, you're the modern, you're the modern incarnation of uh, legendary cricketers uh, that form this panel. Um, uh, I say that tongue in cheek, but we do appreciate what you bring in terms of your knowledge and your understanding and appreciation. But um, and just just a quick one on that no, before we move on: the T20 cricket is all about mindset, and if your if your head is not in the the, the mindset of T20 cricket, very hard to to, to switch it on. Well, I think the Aussies have been very focused on test match cricket for a long period of time. So it's quite hard to switch in and out of that if you're not around it all the time. So yeah. I think it's, it, it, yeah, it's not not at the end of, of Aussie T20 cricket. There's, there's a lot more to come. Well, quite potentially, I'm the person that's actually watching the most of the uh, T20 World Cup from the sounds of things. I'm absolutely loving it. and But I do believe Mark Runger's got a bit of a beef with something. Yes, Wes, I'm going to be very short, sharp, and to the point with Brung's beef this week. Uh, I, too, have been watching a fair bit of the T20 World Cup, and uh, I, I'm fascinated uh, by this, uh, by listening to those people who know me will know that I not only take an interest in what happens on the field, but I also take a, a bit of an interest in what happens around the uh, the presentation of the game and the broadcast of the game and all those little factors that, that go with it. And Brung's Beef this week revolves around the current T20 World Cup, in particular at the Dubai International Sports Stadium, because I have been watching a fair bit of the uh, the games from there. And look, for me, and I'm sure most of our listeners, you go to the cricket to watch the cricket and to enjoy the cricket, and that's the excitement that is generated from being at that particular venue. Now, I am getting absolutely sick to death of hearing these people in the background on the commentary trying to rev up the crowd and get them to cheer for no apparent reason, to make some noise, to get excited, all this sort of crap going on in the background. I'm sorry, but if if you're there for that, you're there for the wrong reasons. <laughs> and if I was at the Dubai International Sports Stadium, and I'm going to keep this as nice as I can, I would be seeking out the ground announcer's box 
And I would be going to that box and I would be getting the microphone and I would be putting it in a location that would be making that ground announcer cheer very loudly and yell very loudly for a long, long time. Shut up and let the fans watch the cricket without being pestered. Yes, fair enough too. Uh, It's very, very noticeable, despite the fact that the cricket's fantastic. Now, last weekend, as we turned to a relatively serious topic, was a very, very sad one for Australian cricket with the passing of some famous names in cricket. And I know that Mark Browning and Anthony Petkovic are very much the cricket historian, as we all are. But um, let's give these guys an opportunity to reflect on the passing of some fabulous gentlemen in terms of Alan Davidson, Ashley Mallett and Peter Philpott. And... um, I think I mentioned earlier that um, cricket events and cricket series can sometimes really mark a, a stage in our own lives, and, and you guys no doubt were, well, I suppose um, you really appreciated the contribution to the game that these gentlemen have made. I think of our generation, um, the Ashley Mallet one hit us probably the hardest because we're old enough to have remembered him playing in Ian Chappell's great side and he had a particular role. So so it was the, the biggest shock, especially as he's just released a book about the last invincible Neil Harvey, who now turns out has outlived him. So that was, that was a yeah, that, that really knocked me about, I think, because you can remember him playing on the MCG and with that great side and taking great catches in the gully and getting Tony Gregg stranded down the middle of the pitch, charging his off spinners. Uh, it, it was pretty bizarre. I will say, um, in terms of cricketing greats, that Alan Davidson just des- deserves a mention. He's right up there, and probably with Wasim Akram, the best left-arm fast bowler um, that's played the game in the in the last seventy years. Uh, a really fantastic cricketer. So, um, but yeah, Mallet, I, I present presume Anthony that you also felt the same about that. Absolutely. He was probably, along with Lance Gibbs, was probably the best off-spinner of that late 60s, early to mid-70s um, era. And he um, he had to fork, because of his uh, burgeoning journalist career, he had to forego a trip to the West Indies in 1973, which was when he was at the peak of his powers. I think it's quite conceivable he could have taken 25 or 30 wickets on in that series had he gone. It would have um, enhanced his record even further. I think Alan da- and, about 25 wickets, Sydney. And no. yes, and Alan yeah. Davidson, um, yes, was and not only was a great bowler, but he was a very good, hard hitting, uh, middle to late order batsman as well, and got Australia out of trouble on numerous occasions, and uh, and was a huge factor in that tied Test of 1960-61 against the West Indies. And Peter Philpot was a really good, a good, honest spinner, a real thoughtful, um, a real thoughtful player for New South Wales in particular, and had some quite success for Australia. He also was one of the early coaches of an Australian team. He actually was a, a coach, um, coach slash manager of the 1981 uh, touring side under Kim Hughes that went to England. Um, and that was before, long before the players ever accepted coaches and, um, he had a very rough time of it, and but he was a very, very honourable man and uh, refused to, to criticise or whinge or whine about um, his experiences on that tour, trying to rein in uh, the Kim Hughes versus Marsh Lilly conundrum. Well, one more thing on uh, Rowdy Mallet. Um, 
he was a very droll character and um, his relationship with his first test captain, Bill Laurie, was a really interesting one. Uh, Laurie bowled him lots of overs in India and Mallet did really well there in 69-70. But, um, uh, yeah, they weren't really ever on the same wavelength and uh, I think Ashley Mallet was pretty pleased when Ian Chappell replaced Bill Laurie uh, as test captain in 1971. It's interesting you say that. I've read a lot of Ian Chappell's uh, books over the years, uh, some of his comedy books about the funny anecdotes that he's had from his cricketing years. And and one thing I did notice when uh, when I read that book was that Ashley Mellett did seem to figure an awful lot as the straight man to a lot of the uh, gags that were going on in the Jones rooms. Yeah, exactly. But by the same token, he was did, turned himself into a brilliant catch in gully. He was a brilliant gully fieldsman by the end of his career. I'm disappointed I never got to see Alan Davidson because you know, you know I've only seen rare highlights of him. But but to to know that it, that he is in the upper echelon of of bowlers, I was looking at at you know some stats for him. You know, 44 tests, 186 wickets at 20.53 each, which is just outstanding. And that's uh, apparently that's an average better uh, by only five bowlers since the turn of the 20th century. So. He really is right up there in one of the greats of the uh, the fast bowling brigade for Australia over the uh, over the years. And he also served uh, on the uh, New South Wales uh, board there as a as a chairman for a number of years and as an Australian selector. So he continued to give to the game long after his playing days were over. Yep, sad loss. Well, the final talking point for our program for this week is, of course, the MCG. And we did speak last week about the fact that we're all excitedly looking forward to the Boxing Day game uh, between Australia and England. But, of course, once upon a time, the Boxing Day match was played between two states, Mark Browning. Yes, Wes. Uh, They were entitled to have 5,000 people next weekend at the MCG for the Sheffield Shield match between Victoria and New South Wales. Um, Doubt that they'll get 5,000 over the four days. But uh, it was still, a, it still is a very important fixture. A great win by the Vicks at uh, Dremoyne last week. Uh, and there's still those guys that played in those games say they were the next closest thing to a test match, if not more so. A uh, couple of anecdotes that I got over the years. One was by former Australian captain Ian Johnson talked about having Ray Lindwall bounce him repeatedly and nearly take his head off all day, and then the two of uh, he would come round for a Christmas dinner at his place afterwards. <laughs> so uh, there was really a lot hanging on it. The other, the other best anecdote was about the bodyline, Australian bodyline fast bowler Harry, Harry Alexander. Um, if you ever get the chance, chase this story up. Was in St Kilda for Christmas on Boxing Day. I uh, thought Victoria started at none for 20 with Woodfull and Ponsford batting, got on the tram from St Kilda to get into the MCG and heard that Victoria had been bowled out and batted one short because the number 11 didn't get to the ground on time. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, it was, it was a famous fixture, still is, but, yeah, not really the numbers. But, it was, I, you know, maybe I'll get to the MCG this weekend and it w- would be lovely to be in there and sit in the sun and watch Vicks versus New South Wales. Uh, Mark Browning, I'm not sure if you were at that game, and uh, I'm saying you're doing really, really well if you, if you were, but uh, I go back to 19, uh, 1926, I think it was, 
and uh, Australia, uh, New South Wales played Victoria at the MCG, and uh, Victoria just happened to put away a lazy uh, 1,107 runs in their innings. Uh, quite a knock. Bill Ponsford, I think, was uh, was raining runs that uh, particular innings. Yeah, he got 352, and um, if I remember rightly, uh, Arthur Maley took four for 362. I was just and, hitting his stride. And said that uh, he would have had much better figures uh, if the guy in the members had held those two or three catches. I have taken a catch in the outer at the MCG, but I would say it wasn't me. I wasn't there that long ago, Mark. Um, I am getting on a bit, but, yeah, that's just a little bit before my time. I don't, I don't know about any of you other gentlemen, but uh, when it comes to Victoria Sheffield Shields fortunes, I, I don't care whether we win the trophy or not. All I care is we beat New South Wales every time we play them. Well, oh, as we can. wrap up this week's episode, uh, Tom, you are the sole panel member that's still playing the game. And, of course, you're just one week by the time this actually hits the airwaves in Perth. You're just one week away from the season resuming here in Geelong, Victoria. You must be pretty excited about that. Yeah, can't wait now. For, for the season, it's been a long, uh, long off season with the the addition of the the extra lockdown. So, um, really looking forward to get getting back out there. Just hopefully the the sun comes out and the, and the tracks are hard and and good for batting. Um, but we yeah we're set up very well. So hopefully it's going to be a successful season down at uh, Newtown and Chilwell. Well, I'm glad you mentioned the club there, Tom, because I was just going to mention the club and say to our uh, listeners through uh, Sport FM over in Perth, uh, you might want to get a, a few uh, membership. Ex- uh, representatives over to WA and see if you can sign up some members for the two blues, mate, because you might have some WA people jumping on the bandwagon this year. Yeah. Oh, they're very, very welcome. It's a yeah, lovely club, really good social. Everyone's good, good friends. So always, always keen for a pint. So if anyone fancies it, uh, make your way over. Indeed. Well, thanks for listening to the Inside Edge Cricket Podcast. We trust you've enjoyed the program and we look forward to being back with you again next week. On behalf of the team of Mark Browning, Mark Brunger, Anthony Petkovic and Tom Meredith, I'm Wes Cusworth saying goodbye for now. Listener.